let's go back to that golden era yeah. when everybody fought each other. Mm. That was the greatest time of boxing. Uh, and I'm going back to the 80s and early 2000s. It's changed a little. Now, for instance, I'll give you a great example. Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns, when they first fought, they were in their early 20s. That version today of Sugar Ray Leonard fighting Tommy Hearns was Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford fighting in their mid-30s. Mm -hmm. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. And I think that's where boxing has lost a little bit. I mean, we still love it. We're still going to watch it. It's going to continue. It, it It's still strong. But I call it the Mayweather effect. An Empire Boxing and Unlearning Network production. Welcome back to the Empire Boxing Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jay. And today I have Roberto Diaz, legendary matchmaker for Golden Boy Promotions, founded, of course, by Oscar De La Hoya. And he was with them for nearly a decade. He's worked with some incredible athletes, including some of boxing's best in history, such as Bernard Hopkins, Marco Antonio Barrera, Ricky Hatton, Eric Morales, Sugar Shane Mosley, and Daniel the Miracle Man Jacobs. Roberto, welcome to the show. It is an honor to have you with us. It's, it's an honor for me. Thank you, Coach Jay. I'm really happy. I'm excited. Wow, that intro just brought goosebumps. <laughs> <laughs> but it's true. I mean, Did some of these legendary fighters, it's just, you know, you work with and, and it's just like a dream come true. Amazing. Well, I would love to start by, you know, just asking you to take us back to sort of your early days. And uh, where did you grow up? What was it like for you? And, and was boxing part of your life early, early on? Yes, definitely. Um, I grew up, I was born in San Francisco. Um, first generation. My parents both were born and raised in Mexico. Um, they came in as immigrants. My father joined the military and got his citizenship. Um he instilled boxing into me at a very young age. He loved boxing. Um, but back in that day was, I think I, I fell in love with boxing, not so much because of the sport, but more so because every time there was a big fight, there was a huge gathering at the house and there was a big mm. party. And, that, and I associated boxing with just family and friends coming over. And as I grew up and got older into my teenage years, I started really sitting down and watching the fights and and becoming fans of boxing, um, my big my biggest idol is Muhammad Ali, and you know years later was Salvador Sanchez, and and just that golden era uh, back in the eighties, Sugar Ray Leonard, Marvin Hagler, Tommy Hearns, Duran, the Four Kings, yes, the Four Kings, and and, and it just really you know excited me, um, loved the passion for boxing, and it just kept growing and growing and growing and. Uh, it's so real because to to end up where I ended up, I mean, my dad never worked in boxing. He was just a big fan. I was a big fan. I was going to all the fights, Chavez, De La Hoya, and to eventually years later work with Marco Barrera, work with De La Hoya, work with all these great athletes like you mentioned was at times you pinch yourself and say, mm. is this still a dream? You know, am I living this dream? But um, it's a proof that that dreams do come true. Mm, that's amazing. Now, did you take part in boxing as a participant in your amateur circuit or anything like that as well? Or did you find it just kind of through just being a fan and eventually getting into the business? And we're gonna, I want to ask you more about that transition, but I'm curious to know if you ever laced up the gloves yourself. Yes, I actually tried um, in, in Northern California, PAL, which was the P Police Activity League. Um, it, it was a program... I don't even know if I don't think it exists anymore, but it was a program amateurs then. Unfortunately, and I hate to say this, I didn't have the discipline. I love to get in the ring. Mm. I love to trade. I love to get hit as crazy as it sounds, but I didn't have the training discipline. And it was always like tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And obviously tomorrow goes by and, and, and quickly. Right. Well, let's just say, that, you know, you were destined for something else. Let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. So tell sure. us about when you sort of, like, at what point did matchmaking come onto your radar as something that, you know, you were even interested in or that you were aware of? And, and how does one get into matchmaking? It fell in my lap, to, to be honest. It fell in my lap because um, I got into boxing really 
in a fairy tale story. I met one of my idols, Marco Antonio Barrera. I met him uh, at a mall during a Christmas season in San Diego. No way. I approached him just like uh, any any fan would approach their, you know, uh, athlete or fighter. But back then, we didn't have cameras on the cell phones. And I don't even remember Mm. if we even had a cell phone. This is around 97. And he's coming off a loss to Junior Jones. And I approach him as a fan. Keep your head up. You're one of the best. Uh, you know, just giving him well well wishes. And I go out in the mall to try to find something for him to sign. I wasn't the kind of fan that, oh, can you sign my shirt? Or can you sign this napkin? Or If it was boxing, it had to be something boxing related. It was football, football related. To each its sport. So I went around the mall trying to find a glove, mouthpiece even. And it wasn't like a a sporting goods store. I was like at a a fashion mall. So I couldn't find anything. Um, I must have seemed like a stalker to him because there I am (laughs) looking, waiting for him to walk by again. And I see him and I approach him once again. And I said, Marco, um, look, again, I'm a big fan. If I give you my address, would you mind sending me something autographed? And he said, sure, give it to me. So I give it wow. to him, go home. Couple weeks later, I get a package in the mail and it's a eight by 10 studio picture and a t-shirt and, no and, and like a note. Yeah, no, it was, it was really cool to receive that package. And fast forward like a year or two later, uh, he's gonna fight, right? I lived in San Diego and he's gonna fight at Fantasy Springs. This is around December and it's prior to the first Morales fight. So it's 99. Mm. And I said, oh, you know what? Barrera's fighting. Let me go watch him. So I go to Fantasy Springs from San Diego. It's like a two-hour drive. I get there. And as I'm approaching the entrance, him and his team are walking in. Now, it's been almost about two years. And he looks at me and he says, San Diego, right? So he remembered me from the mall. He didn't remember, obviously, my name because of all the people they meet and all the fans they meet, but he remembered the person. So I said, yeah, San Diego, let's go in the back. And he takes me in the back in the dressing room, introduces me to his team, his family. And that's the start of my boxing uh, dream, but eventually would get me into carry the flag, uh, do the translation with reporters. And once he goes into the Golden Boy promotions as the first big name fighter, he calls me and says, start negotiating my fights and working on the opponents and, 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 you know, getting the fights done. And that was a moment that I was frightened. I was like, wait, what, what, this is happening too fast. I mean, from carrying the flag to translating to now all of a sudden go sit down on the table and I thought about it for two or three days. I, I I couldn't sleep. What do I do? Should I do it? Should I not? And it was something that was like, it just, again, it fell in my lap. I wasn't out there searching it, but it was like, do I let it go? This is what I would always dream of and, and would love to do and took it on. Um, we lost our first fight, <laughs> Manny Pacquiao. We faced Manny Pacquiao. So I thought, okay, that's my debut and that's my uh, retirement. It's going to be over <laughs> and done with. <laughs> but uh, he continued on and, and went on to the third Morales fight and won that fight and became one of Golden Boy's biggest stars at the time. And uh, once he retired, Golden Boy called me and said, would I like to come on board? The company was growing really fast. And I asked, what would you like me to do? They said, you have an eye for talent and uh, help assign fighters and match them. And I said, okay, let's go. And I was there for 15 years. That's unreal. So I want to ask you so much more about that. Like what an incredible story. I I feel like that is the American dream. You know, the story that people talk about, you go to America and someone takes a chance on you. And next thing you know, you're whisked into your dreams. And, and I'm going to say that that doesn't happen that often. And what an incredible, incredible story. And then what an incredible career that followed. Now, Take me back to that moment in the dressing room. Like, who was there? What kind of energy were you feeling? What kind of conversations were you trying to have? Were you just, like, were you overwhelmed? Were you just immediately, like, right in it and on? What was that like for you? 
Well, to be honest, it, it was a small fight. It was prior to the first Morales fight. He fought a kid named uh, Najera. Again, Fantasy Springs, was, you know, it was outdoors. Not They now have mm -hmm. an indoor venue. Um, I was very excited. I'm in the back in the dressing room. His father, his trainer, his brother, uh, his manager at the time. It, it was just like, wow, I've only seen you before on TV, on HBO, after dark. And now I'm here in the dressing room with you. But they were just so down to earth. So like, mm. it almost felt like I knew them for many years. Wow. Like, that's how they made me feel. And it was just so comfortable. In fact, I, I was never a photographer, but I had a camera and they said, here, here's a credential. Why don't you take pictures ringside for us? Wow. And I'm like, what? Okay. And I'm, I'm on the ring mat taking pictures, uh, um, like if I was a photographer. So from there on, the, the friendship developed. I ended up being a uh, godfather to his firstborn. Um, I mean, the relationship just grew and grew and grew. And he had a great career, and I, I admire him tremendously. Wow, incredible. Now, let's fast forward then to that phone call with Golden Boy Promotions. You're offered this job as a matchmaker. Um, did you know anything about what that actually looked like from a logistical perspective at the time? Or are you flying by the seat of your pants? Well, when I first get the call and I, I'm told what the offer and what my duties would be, I every every fight fan is a matchmaker in itself. Hmm. You okay. know, fight fans make some great matchmakers. Uh, once they get into understanding the styles what style works. And, and I had been matchmaking for Marco with Golden Boy. And I think that's where they saw that I knew a little bit of what was, you know, the duties of matchmaking because they'd offer opponents for Marco and I would turn them down. No, um, I'll talk to the team, but I don't like this fight for these reasons. And I guess that's what enticed them to make me the offer. And obviously uh, my, my first reaction was like, wow, you know, but is it going to work? Am I really going to be able to deliver what they're looking for? Because it was one thing to work with one established fighter, already a world champion. At that point, you have to fight whoever the TV assigns you to fight. Mm. But it's another thing, and that's when it's harder to take a young man's career from a pro debut where you still are getting to know him, his strengths, his weaknesses, and match him. And you can ruin a career or you can develop a future world champion. So it was going to see, basically when I accepted it, it was going to be like, okay, I leave it in God's hands and let's see how, how good or how bad it can go. Um, 15 years, I think it went okay. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I'll say so. Now, um, I think it'd be really interesting for some of our, our listeners to kind of have you explain, how do you go about deciding what's a good fight, like your process? What's a good fight? What's a good fight at what time in a career? What's a, what's not an intelligent fight to take at the time? And do you make that fight later? What's your process that you go through? You go through a lot of obstacles. And I'll go back to saying that fans are some great matchmakers. What they need to understand, though, is not just, oh, A can fight B. That's a no-brainer. But you mm. go through obstacles because maybe you present A and B, but B's father, mother, spouse, brother, sister, manager, trainer, all opposed to that fight. So even though it's a natural of matching A versus B, you have obstacles. Uh, sometimes the manager, for financial reasons, says it's not the time yet. Let's make it when that fight is bigger. Or the trainer for reasons unknown to me, maybe knows a weakness that I haven't seen yet and knows that it's not the time. So there's obstacles that sometimes the fans don't understand. And then the financials, you know, when when ego gets involved. Mm. Well, A versus B. Well, B, I should be A. No, I should be. And, and then it gets into those little things and I'm talking more on the bigger fights than at the beginning of the career. I'll go back to answer the beginning part. Um, but but there's always little obstacles that you, with time, with experience, you learn how to counter them. Um, and I'll, mm. I'll, I'll give you a great example. Um, 
back at Golden Boy, two fighters under the stable, undefeated, both champions, Marlene Esparza against Anissa Estrada. Who gets treated the A side and who's the B side? And why am I going to be the A side? I'm, you know, so you try to, in those situations, it's very difficult. It's, it's like having to pick two of your sons and say, which son is my preferred son? So you try to give each side a little something. For instance, mm -hmm. okay, you're the A side, but you'll be announced first. And you're the B side, but you'll be announced second. And you're going to walk first, but you're going to walk second. And you try to give championship privileges to both sides to try to make it as even and make them as comfortable as possible where they know that, look, at the end of the day, the winner's going to be whoever wins upside, inside that ring, not mm -hmm. because I prefer you over you. So you try to give both sides that comfort. Um, but, but going back to the original question is when and where... Every fighter's different, and you got to remember that, that it, it is a blueprint, but some get there faster, some get there slower. And what I mean by that is it's a process. You you build little by little every fight, pick it up, give them a southpaw, give them somebody that's tall, give them somebody that boxes, give them a right-hander, give them somebody that stands in front. And as he's passing every level, then you start stepping it up. But you normally... It's around three to four years where they're getting 15 to 18 fights that now they're starting to get ready for that top competition. And again, some fighters are much faster. Uh, Virgil Ortiz was already fighting former world champions in I think his 10th or 11th fight. Um, but he was f passing with flying colors. So you gradually step it up and step it up and step it up until you say, okay, wait a minute, let's slow it down or let's hold off for right now. Virgil to this day has, you know, class with flying colors. That's incredible. So interesting for the, you know, for the true fans to sort of understand even the nuances of who walks first, who gets announced first, uh, especially with difficult A side, B side decisions. That, that was really fascinating. In your opinion, early in a professional career, is it more important to get the fights almost regardless of, you know, the opponent uh, to some degree, obviously you don't want something massively skewed, but like should, should fighters just be saying yes more than no earlier in their career, in your opinion, or should they be start being choosy right out the gate? No, they should be active. They should be fighting. Um, obviously it's a team with the whole team um, putting in their two cents, but let's go back to that golden era. Yeah when everybody fought each other. Mm. That was the greatest time of boxing. Uh, and I'm going back to the 80s and early 2000s. It's changed a little. Now, for instance, I'll give you a great example. Sugar Ray Leonard and Tommy Hearns, when they first fought, they were in their early 20s. That version today of Sugar Ray Leonard fighting Tommy Hearns was Errol Spence and Terrence Crawford fighting in their mid-30s. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. And I think that's where boxing has lost a little bit. I mean, we still love it. We're still going to watch it. It's going to continue. It, it It's still strong. But I call it the Mayweather effect. The Mayweather <laughs> effect was it worked out very well for Mayweather. The zero. It's pretty. It's beautiful. But it worked out very good for him because he's great. Obviously, he he, he was a great fighter a great businessman, but it's not for everybody. We have to remember back in Sugar Ray, the, 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 the fabulous four, like you mentioned, the, the four kings, they all lost. Duran, I think, had over 10 losses. You know, mm. Sugar Ray Leonard lost, Tommy Hearns lost. But we still remember as great because they fought each other. They were daring to fight the best. Today, there's going to be champions that we may not remember in five or six years because we're not going to remember these great fights. And that's sad. Mm. They might make a lot of money, but they're not going to they're going to be forgotten. And and once right. the money's gone, the only thing you can hold on to is that legacy and and people stopping you in the street even 20 years after your retirement and saying, "Wow, you know, you're a great fighter or you were a great fighter and you're my idol or you're the best I've ever seen." 
Yeah. It's interesting. I think, you know, you're right that some of the best fights were even like, I'm just thinking about like the Gotti war trilogy too. There, there was a winner and there was a loser, but both men had, you know, the, the, the respect and the, they created legacies with that trilogy, you know? So, um, it's interesting. Do you think, do you think this sort of, I don't want to say like extra choosiness that's happening and no one wants to fight the best guy. And is it really about risking the O or is it about maximizing the payout in your opinion? I think, I think it's that generation that came after Floyd that, Mm. that wants to be like Floyd. Like every generation has somebody to look up to Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Leonard, Mike Tyson, then came Floyd. And all the young fighters that came up after Floyd said, they, it's almost like you, you, you put two and two together and it's like the zero and the money. Mm. The fame and the money equals the zero. So they went with that. I think we're getting over it. And, and a lot has to do with Canelo. I think Canelo has lost a couple fights, but he's dared to fight everybody. He's now that new version of the Floyd, the fighter of today, the top fighter, making so many millions of dollars. Now the younger fighters coming after Canelo are daring to be similar, fighting the best. Teofimo fought Lomachenko at an early stage. Haney's gone to Australia a couple times, fought Lomachenko. Ryan fought Gervonta, Gervonta fought Ryan. So you're starting to see fighters at a younger age now uh, like it should be taking these risks. Mm. Interesting. And and what do you think like the crossover boxing effect on all of that sort of the, I, I just want, I almost want to like put it as like the cultural sort of dilution of boxing. Like how has crossover affected that positively or negatively in your opinion? You mean like the YouTubers and all of the, yeah, or like crossing from MMA over into boxing, like slipstreaming the the ladder for financial payout. How has that affected it? It has because it's not, in my personal opinion, it's not realistically going to hold. And it's a fad. I mean, look, Ali fought a wrestler. Okay, that was a show. They could people to tell me, well, what's the difference between Tyson and and Nagato? I think Ali, when he fought the, the wrestler, wasn't the heavyweight world champion. Um, if Tyson Fury mm. was retired and wanted to go on and fight an MMA guy or like Floyd's doing these exhibitions, I'd have no problem. But as the heavyweight champion, uh, defend your heavyweight title against the number one guy, beat him, and then, okay, you know what? I'm going to take in between a big fight and another fight. I'll take this. Can't knock it. But it's hard to tell to say you can't do it when they're making so many millions of dollars right now. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I'm that, just not a big that, uh, fan of it. Yeah. I think with that Fury fight, too, you saw just, you, you know, he had nothing to lose. So he didn't really put much into it like i would be surprised if he had a full camp for that you know because there wasn't there was nothing on the line it was uh it was clout or you know like the wow factor and and i think they had a record breaking low number of pay-per-view sales because of that and i wonder if that's um was that time zone or was that people going like come on like what we're waiting for is fury and usek like we know you're just trying to get paid so you know i wonder if that was the fans speaking out silently or if that was more of the fact that it was in abu dhabi i'm not exactly sure but that that was an interesting example wasn't it i think i think that's it little by little that fad's gonna start you know people are gonna start being like okay they'll fool me once but fool me twice no you know, it's, it's it, what makes it difficult is with the kind of money he made, if they, if, if you think about it, do, do I, did I make this fight close so that I can leave open a rematch? Because I'll do it again for 20, rather than risking against Usyk. So it, it, it makes it really difficult. I mean, again, once they're retired, I have no problem with what they do and do exhibitions like Floyd's doing. I just won't watch. But when they're active, uh, do your sport, you know, that that, that honor and, 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 and defend your titles or fight a fighter, not mm-hmm. a, an MMA fighter. And all, yeah. uh, and all props to Nagano. I mean, for somebody that picked up the gloves for the first time and went oh, in there, yeah. that's a true athlete. 
You know, exactly because it's like, wow, you went 12 rounds uh, with the heavyweight champion of the world when you, you should have been tired by holding these gloves after three rounds. Absolutely. And, and even managed to put him on the canvas in like the fifth or something, uh, whatever it was. But yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree with you. I was very impressed with Nganu's performance and I, I hope he does keep boxing. Um, and I think they're talking about him and Deontay Wilder. They're talking about him and Anthony Joshua now. So there's a, you know, potentially some exciting fights that could come from that. Uh, Roberto, I wanted to ask you when I was, you know, I was doing some Googling and I was, I was re researching your career and things like that. And I came across a really interesting comment from uh, someone on the internet saying, you know, I never understood the purpose of matchmakers. The promoter should be able to do it all themselves. And obviously we're a promotion and we have a matchmaker that we couldn't do it without, but I think it'd be really cool for the listeners. If you explain from your perspective, the difference between the, what the matchmaker should be doing, the manager, the promoter, and why each of them are, should be separate silos and why each is important, and especially from a matchmaker's perspective. Absolutely. Um, look, the matchmaker is one of the, it's like that, that the kicker in an NFL team. It's, it's, if he makes it and it's great, good, but you mess up and it's the matchmaker's fault. Um, it's a, it's a, very isolated position. There's very few of us. We understand each other throughout all the world. Uh, there's a lot of respect because only a matchmaker knows what a matchmaker goes through. And what I mean by that is, I'll give you an example. My phone is on 24-7 mm. um, because you might have a call from Germany, from Europe, from Japan at all times, different time zones of a fighter pulling out, I missed my flight, I, I I got injured, I got cut. Oh yeah. You wanna be the first to know, um, to try to fix the problem, save the show, um, notify the other team. But the promoter in this particular case, let's say Golden Boy Promotions, Oscar De La Hoya, he is the head of the promotion, they put up all the money, they sign the fighters, they, Obviously, find the venues. Everybody has a position in under that umbrella of a promoter. The person that finds the venues, the person that uh, does the medicals, the person that does the travel. There's a person that gets sponsorships. And then there's the person that signs the talent and puts it together, makes the fights. And that's the matchmaker. Um mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's a process, uh, again, to sign the fighters, make sure you're getting a talent. Now, there's so many talented fighters from all over the world. You have to see if that fighter, uh, number one, f in the market that you're in, can you make him? It's not just about working and trying to make a world champion. Obviously, that is the goal of every fighter and as the promoter and the matchmaker. But you also want to try to break him out not just a world champion, but a star, crossover star, selling tickets. Uh, because at the end of the day, it is a business, entertainment, but it is a business. So you want it to make it as profitable as possible. So you work around what that market that you're attending to, to be able to sell tickets as well. So it's not just you're looking at, wow, this is because you would get calls. Oh, I have the best fighter in, in the country. You need to sign them. Okay, um, but can I benefit the fighter and can the fighter benefit me? So it, it, it's, mm. it's you know, what works for you? Mm. That's a really good way of putting it. I'm curious, how do you keep a tap on all the talent in the different, like, and, and sorting that and organizing that from all over the country, you know, from Mexico, wherever you're looking, what are some of the ways you keep your eyes out for new talent? Is it phone calls from coaches? Do you go and visit gyms? Like what's your process and sort of, I guess, casting the net and, and, and having a vast look at the possibilities of who you might be able to match? Awesome question. I used to get a lot of DVDs a lot of DVDs in the mail and they would just, sometimes it was addressed to me. Sometimes it was just addressed to the matchmaker. Sometimes it was just, you know, golden boy promotions and we put in the DVD. Oh, it's a fighter. Okay. I'll take a look at him. And again, like everything in life, you get all shapes, sizes, colors, and, and, and whatever. 
I'd get some guys that were 55 years old shadow boxing in their bedroom and I'm going to be the next champion. And it was like, okay. And that, I mean, it was hilarious. Some of the things you get, um, but every once in a while you get a DVD and it was like, okay, this caught my eye. Let me follow up. Let me find out some more research. And then from DVDs, as the years went by, it started to become links and get on YouTube and check me out. And, and obviously the internet is a huge tool that they didn't have back years ago um, to be able to get on the internet and watch videos of sparring sessions or watch actual fights. I never really liked sparring sessions personally because they could be edited, they could be fixed, they could be adjusted. Mm. Um, but I actually really liked fights. And some videos, again, it was a camcorder jumping up and down. I couldn't finish it. And then there were some videos that looked like you were watching a movie. I mean, just well done. And like anything, you would give that more attention just because of all the time they took and the effort they took to make sure that you looked at it. And one that comes to mind of how good the videos were, were uh, Omar Figueroa. His dad had a team, and this is before we had social media, before it, they had a team follow him around with a camcorder and record him and put it together. And I would see, I, I signed Omar when he had like six or seven fights. So I obviously the videos I were watching were from like one to seven. And I would see how the fans of all ages were really clinging on to him and, and, and adapting to him and how he was with the fans after the fight. So that was something I, I signed him like, I think he was like 18 or 19 years old when I first signed him. And it wasn't so much what he can do in the ring, but I saw something of what he can do outside of the ring and the connection he had with the fans. And he was young enough that I said with time, he could learn the boxing part inside the ring. He had a natural punch. He was a big puncher, good-looking kid, but he had a very good connection with the fans outside. Mm -hmm. And that told me there's a potential to be somebody pretty big. When I first signed him, there was a bunch of emails sent to Golden Boy saying, who's doing your signing? Because this kid is not even good at the state level, much less at a national level. Mm. I remember doubting myself. I'm like, wow, maybe, maybe I wasn't cut out for this. And a few years later, he became a world champion and uh, that erased all doubts there. That's amazing. That's such a that's such a cool nuance to pick up on is not just like, you know, the skill of the boxer, but the marketability of that as well. And I think we're, you know, now as well, we're in a, in a totally different era where I'd say marketing is absolutely a staple part of your career or aspiring career. Would you agree? Absolutely. And a great example is Ryan Garcia. You know, Ryan Garcia, mm -hmm. a lot of fans criticize him because, oh, he's a social media but no, he's a great fighter. He's a great young fighter. He 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 is disciplined. He trains hard. He has a lot of talent. But he also got it and he understood it and took it to a I mean, totally different level with with mm -hmm. social media. And at the end of the day, when you see Ryan Garcia fighting Gervonta Davis and doing double the numbers of a Crawford and Spence, mm -hmm then you have to admit and you have to say we're in different times now in social media and having that uh, impact is very important. Absolutely. I think it, I think the, the use of, you know, the proper use of Instagram and TikTok and things like that also brings the eyes of casual fans, which you would see reflected in, in the numbers of that type of fight. You're right. Versus, you know, Spence Crawford, which was definitely a, a boxing fans fight, right. You know, something that, if you're following the sport, you're excited to see, uh, you know, but then you've got young, talented, Instagram famous kind of guys who have in a totally different persona that they're, they're elevating to um, draw the eyes of, of casual fans. And that's, that's how boxing is growing. I think for sure. Um, curious to know what some of your, your best memories uh, working with golden boy were. Oh, there's so many. Um, one of my top memories is, is, going to Monaco with a young kid out of uh, Coachella, the Valley, and winning the world title and seeing seeing him and his father embrace and, and, and pretty much come to tears because that dream that started when he was seven years old with his father 
and all the sacrifices and everything they went through had finally reached that pinnacle. They won the world title. And when they said winner and new champion, uh, Randy Caballero from Coachella, it just, seeing them embrace just made it all worthwhile. Like all the bad things that go through for a matchmaker, sleepless nights and throwing the phone against the wall and breaking a few phones, <laughs> that makes it all worthwhile. Going with uh, Pauli Malinaji to the Ukraine, fighting for the world title, it's reminiscent of, of the real Rocky Balboa going to Russia and fighting Ivan Drago. And, and, and I mean it because it's uh, Rocky, Italian, Pauli, Italian, going over to the Ukraine and fighting this bigger guy in Sachenko, undefeated. And Pauli, who had like four or five knockouts, winning by knockout. It was, you know, incredible. Jumping in the ring, him and the team celebrating, and I'm looking at all the angry faces. I'm like, guys, let's take it to the locker room and let's get out of here. You know, let's <laughs> yeah. get our belt and go. We're in enemy it, it was territory. Just, uh, yeah, yeah. Stop celebrating so much. Yeah. Don't over celebrate. And and another one was Deontay Wilder. Um, the heavyweight division had not ha the American heavyweight hadn't had uh, a heavyweight champion since. I think since Mike Tyson and and to sign Deontay Wilder to take him from pro debut to 33-0 and 0 and pick up the belt against Avern and bring that title back to America was amazing. It, it, it brought so much satisfaction because especially with Deontay, um, there was so much criticism. He's only fighting tomato cans. He's not fighting anybody. Wait till he fights somebody. To quiet all the critics, I remember telling them in, in, in the room when he got his belt in the hotel and saying, because that it was it was bittersweet. That day he wins the world title, his contract ends with Golden Boy. So it was like, it was bittersweet. It was over. It was goodbye. See you later. You've graduated, but you've graduated with the world title. I'm proud of you. Go on and defend it. I'll always be supporting you. One thing I knew about Deontay is if he hits you with that right hand, mm. nine out of ten times you're going to go to sleep. So there was always confidence in, in his ability to knock somebody out. And it, I, it was proud. I was really proud to be a, a little part of that, of bringing that title back to the U.S. after so many years. Amazing. Now, we have some of our own, you know, nightmare stories that are we keep <laughs> we keep under uh, close wraps. But I'd love to know, like at that level, um, what kind of what is some of your craziest behind the scenes, like last minute wild stories that you have from uh, matchmaking with Golden Boy? I almost had a heart attack this night. <laughs> um, no, seriously, I, I was I was praying to God that the power went out in the venue I was praying no. to God that it, it was just horrible, no horrible, horrible. So we're in San Jose. Uh, Robert the Ghost Guerrero is going to fight Selkuk Aydin. Selkuk Aydin was the higher weight fighter. I believe the fight was at 140 pounds, maybe, maybe 147. I don't recall the weight right now. But Robert had come up from 126. So we do the selection of the gloves, the weigh-in. There's already a lot of, uh, they're tense. Both teams almost at the weigh-in got into a big brawl. So things are moving very fast. It's fight night. The promoter of Selkuk, Aydin, Selkuk was like number one. Robert Guerrero was like number two. So the promoter for Selkuk, Aydin comes over to me and says, we're not walking first. We are number one. We need respect. We're walking second. And I'm like, you can't do this to me right now. We're like five minutes from walking. You got to walk first. No, no. I said, look, it's in the contract. And only because it was in the contract, he's like, okay, you got me there. So they walked first. Robert walked second. Keep in mind, San Jose, Robert's from that area. So fight started. First or second round, I get a text from a cousin of mine who is a big boxing fan, but it's not in the business at the time. And he says, hey, in the text, and I, I, I rarely, in the fight, I'm rarely on my phone. 
Like mm. I, I, I'm not gonna get distracted with texting back and forth or getting on. I the was phone, just gonna ask. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't like it. I, in fact, people. Oh, I see you. Hey, say hi. I put the phone away and I'm like concentrate on the fight. But yeah. I get the text and it says, "Is El Kukaidin wearing bigger gloves because he's the bigger guy?" And I'm like, ah, "What are you talking about?" Right. A couple rounds later, Eric Gomez, who's Today is the president at, at Golden Boy and obviously had been at Golden Boy before me. Says, hey, are you sure you gave both 8-ounce gloves? They're supposed to be wearing 8-ounce gloves. It, it was at 140. It couldn't have been at 147. So I'm like, uh-oh, that's two people now. <laughs> now I'm starting to doubt myself. I mean, I, I normally would have checked the gloves, but now I don't remember checking them. So now all I'm thinking, the scandal that's going to erupt oh, if no. I gave one guy 10 and the other one 8. It's cheating. It was done purposely. It was, right. And now I'm thinking, oh, my God. And and who had the 10 ounce? The opponent, apparently. So now that's why I'm like, please let the power go out. Let, <laughs> let, let me let me find a, a, a tunnel like Chapo and, and get underneath and just disappear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I'm really getting anxious. I'm, I'm starting to like, I, I, I want this to be like back in the day, 100 rounds so the fight never ends. Or do I really want it to end right away and find out what's really going on? Now, it's like the sixth or seventh round. And I'm sitting next to the promoter of Aideen. And he gets a phone call. And it's Yorkis Gamboa, a fighter of his. And Gamboa now tells him, hey, they screwed you guys. You guys got 10-ounce gloves while Guerrero has eight. So now you have three. And I'm hearing this. I'm right next to the promoter. He's sitting right next to me. And he's like talking and, and passes the phone to his partner, who's now talking in Spanish with Gamboa. And when they hang up, the partner tells the promoter, hey, they screwed us. Look, Aideen has 10-ounce gloves. So now I'm just sweating. I'm, I'm just oh, like, no. oh, my God. The, the the headlines tomorrow, uh, the company, you know, cheated. Uh, Robert, you're fired. Uh, the scandal. My name, instead of going into the Hall of Fame, it's going to go into the Hall of Shame. I mean, it was just really, really, really tense as the fight starts ending. So the fight's over. Of course, I'm telling the promoter, no, not at all. Of course, they're right outs. I gave your team, your coach saw them. Because obviously they got to check the gloves. So now I'm trying mm. to pass. If I did make a mistake, well, you guys didn't catch it either. You know, it, it was like I'm trying to fix yeah. the wrong. So we get in the ring. And obviously they're going to go to the decision. They're starting to take the gloves off. I go right away to the referee and I said, hey, you check the gloves, right? Before the fight. He goes, yeah. And they're, they're both eight outs, right? He goes, yeah. But he's not giving me that certainty. I'm still like, oh. So I go to the supervisor, same thing. He goes, I think so. Oh, that's not what I want to hear. So I'm slowly turning around to see if they have the gloves off. Because if now there's a riot in the ring, they're 10 ounce. But if there's nothing going on and the gloves are off, they're 8 ounce. So as I turn around and I see them now gloves off and... They're waiting for the decision, and, and I'm like, okay, there's no negative reaction on their side. Okay, so I walk over, and I said, now, are you happy? Now I'm feeling confident that they were eight out. So now, are you okay? Do you believe me now? And he goes, yeah, yeah, I'm sorry, brother. I'm sorry. Yes, they're eight ounce. I almost passed out right there. I almost oh passed out. Oh, my I was God. Like, Thank you, God. You 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 turned those 10 ounce in the middle of the uh. fight into eight ounce. And saved me. So what it was is it's an illusion. They were white mm. gloves. You rarely see white gloves on TV. And they looked. I went back and I'm watching it and I'm watching it. And yes, they did look bigger. But it's, it was eight ounce white gloves, Reyes gloves that just looked on TV bigger than the opponent's gloves. Oh, but my that God. That was the nightmare story that... uh that will always, I'll always remember it because it was like, please 
just make this end and, and, and you know, save me. And luckily, oh those God. 10 ounce gloves turn into eight. <laughs> that, that is an aneurysm. No, so who ultimately, who is liable, though? Is it not the commission? Or would it be you fully ch- falling on the on the chopping board for that? <laughs> I it would people would have pointed fingers, but at the end of the day, I would bring gloves. Uh, Don Chargin, a mentor of mine, one of the greatest promoters, matchmakers in boxing, told me one time uh, he had a show in El Paso, Texas, and when they started looking for the gloves, it was a TV show. They didn't have gloves. Nobody brought the gloves. So they oh had a crossover God. to Juarez to go get gloves, and the show started late. So I I had dreams, nightmares, that I'd wake up like, oh, my God, we don't have gloves, you know, <laughs> at the show. So I would travel with the gloves. Wherever I went, I took a scale with me and Handcuffed gloves with me. to you in to, a suitcase. <laughs> yeah, because if you ship them off and for whatever reason they didn't make it, you're screwed. So I would travel with a bag. Uh, of gloves, obviously check them in. I travel my scale, check it in, get to the site where the fights were. I had my gloves. So in that particular case, it would have gone through the commission, a supervisor for the organization, and the other camp, the the fighters camp. But if they all missed it, they weren't going to admit it was their fault. They were going to mm. point the finger to the promoter and the promoter was going to say, well, you know, the promotion was going to say, well, who took the gloves? Who picked them? Who ordered them? Oh, you did. You're out of here, sucker. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Bullet dodged on that one. A huge bullet. What are your thoughts on Showtime uh, leaving boxing? And do you think I, I've, I've heard some statements from Dana White saying, you know, he's he is the network. They are going to be the network. Who do you think is going to fill that gap or? Um, do you think Saudi Arabia is just going to take over the boxing scene? Like, what are your thoughts on kind of how boxing's going to go uh, from from Showtime's exit? I'm sad with Showtime exiting, just like I was with HBO exiting. Um, those are two of the top networks that I grew up watching some of the greatest fights. So, so it is sort of, sort of nostalgic to see them, you know. Uh, I won't say disappear. I'm just saying, hopefully, it's a break and. One day they decide to come back because I think nobody did it better than HBO and Showtime. Um, But with that said, with every door that closes, a new one opens. Obviously, when HBO went out, we got uh, The Zone. And and I think with with Showtime exiting, it leaves opportunity for somebody else to come in, whether it's Dana White or somebody else. I think there is an opportunity. There is that gap that... Someone does it similar to how it was done before, doing the 24-7s, doing the all-access, doing where the fans get to really know the fighter, not just in the ring or in the gym, but let me see that real person that uh, either has to work, has to take care of the children, has to do Mm -hmm. something else, but is also a world champion or one of the top athletes fighting. Or has other hobbies that maybe I, as a fan, wow, I like that too. And, and, and could start relating more to build a star. Yeah, that's just it, right? Is that, you know, relatability and visibility to the fan and creating the story behind someone. I think as far as, you know, Dana White's concerned, I think that's something that UFC does really well, you know, with the embeddeds and the contender series. And they sort of take you along a journey. So you end up being a lifelong fan of someone, almost regardless of their success, people still sort of stick with, it's like, actually you see that all the time in sport, you see that in, in football and in hockey and baseball is, you know, you're diehard fans of the city's team, regardless of their record. And, and you start to see that the more stories are told about fighters and combat sport, I think for sure. A hundred percent. It's, I've been saying it for years. Boxing's worst enemy is the boxing in the the, the boxing people. The, the the boxing fan is never happy. And I'll give you an example. Um, Canelo beats a Triple G today, and then the fans like, yeah, but he wouldn't have beat a Triple G last year. Or can he beat a Benavides tomorrow? It's like, enjoy that moment right now mm. of your favorite fighter doing what he just did. Cherish it. And then hope that something else comes out of it later. But you don't see, I'm a 49er fan. 
Uh, 49ers haven't won a Super Bowl in years, but if they won the Super Bowl, I won't compare them and say, yeah, but they did, They wouldn't have beat Joe Montana's <laughs> team or they wouldn't have beat Steve Young's team. I'm just going to enjoy the moment that they win that next Super Bowl. Hopefully it's this year and, and enjoy it and not compare them with other teams, but compare them with the team and the season that they did. That's so interesting. Now, do you think that that's such a great way of looking at it, right? Like that comparison. Do you think that sort of ties in that old saying as, you know, boxing being the loneliest sport, like the glory is so short and someone's already ready to doubt you on tomorrow. And and why do you think that is? Do you think it's because it's more of an individual sport versus a team sport? I think it has two things. One, yes, it's, it is a individual sport and it's easier to pick on that particular fighter rather than who do you blame on the team is it his fault, his fault, his, you know, the coach's fault. There's so much more uh, in debt that you can go into a, with a team. But it's also the new, and I say this respectfully, but the new media. We don't mm. have a lot of journalism anymore. We don't have a lot of journalists covering the sport. We have a lot of boxing fans that'll cover the sport, but they don't report on it. They opinionate on it. So they go into a fight saying, oh, this is a horrible fight, blah, blah, blah. It's a mismatch. And it, that transfers over to the viewing audience that now repeat it because if the expert's saying it's not worth watching and it's a mismatch, why mm. should I watch it? It's really the only sport that does that. I mean, every other sport, they push on the sport, they promote the sport, uh, and they excite the crowd. Audio has a lot to do just as much as visual. So if they're really excited, and, and I'll go back to some of the networks in Mexico, you see Julio Cesar Chavez commenting and yelling, and, ah! and I'm watching the fight, I'm like, uh, is it really that exciting? But he excites me. So I'm like, okay, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. We need a little bit more of that. We need a little bit from our own industry to help promote the sport, not knock it. What kind of changes do you think um, we as the industry could make in order to elevate boxing and the story behind the, the, the fighters and keep the glory lasting for more than a moment? What do you think that could be? I think it has to start with a lot of the promoters working with each other and, and, and you know, been saying that for years. If, if set aside differences. Look, at the end of the day, when... When you put your best against another promoter's best, against the other promoter's best, against this promoter's best, boxing wins, fans win, mm -hmm. fighters make money. And you're going to win some and you're going to lose some. But at the end of the day, a, a, a friendly, friendly rivalry is always healthy. It's, it's, it's exciting. It brings out that I want to, okay, he got me this time. Let me go get him next time. And it's fun. It, it is really genuinely fun. And, and I've always liked that. I mean... Uh, I've had no issues working with any promoter in the past and, and dealing with other matchmakers. And, and I always was pushing for, even during the time at, at, at Golden Boy and under the same umbrella of DAZN, is saying at the end of the year, Golden Boy should do uh, Golden Boy against Matchroom. And you put mm. on your best against their best. And once a year, similar to a World Series, similar to the Super Bowl, you put on a card where on one side it's Matchroom, on one side it's Golden Boy. It's the bigger event of the year. And guess what? The fans will tune in because it's they're either fans of the fighter or they're fans now of the promoters because that's a new thing now. The, the promoters have fans and they don't care what fight it is, but they'll fight. I remember back in the day, I didn't care what network it was on. I didn't care what promoter was doing it. Mm. Uh, I just care to see... You know, Marvin Hagler against Tommy Hearns. Wow, they're mm -hmm. going to fight. I want to tune in. I'll be there an hour before it starts to make sure the signal's on, you know? But mm -hmm. but today it's a little bit different because I think social media has a lot to do with it and how it's been pushed and and the division of so many different that street and this street. It's like, let's just put everybody to fight everybody and you're going to have some great fights. Mm. How difficult is it to get people to collaborate behind the scenes in, in boxing? It has become more and more difficult because of 
of egos because of I want this and you don't get that and I bring more to the table than you bring to the table. There's so many ways to get a fight done and, 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 and you got to forget. They, everybody has to just sit down, get to a table. And one thing that the fighters have to remember, if they want to fight, the promoters will get the fight done. But they have mm -hmm. to want to fight. Yeah, interesting. Because the job of the promoter is to do basically what the fighter wants and get the fighter the best fights out there. Yeah, yeah, really interesting. I was curious to know a couple fight predictions from you as well. Uh, Fury Usek, seeing as we touched on it, um, what's, uh, what's your prediction from the experts department over there? You know, it's a very difficult fight. It's a very... Uh, that's when you know it's a good fight because one day I'll I'll say Tyson, the other day I'll say Usyk. I wasn't a big Tyson Fury fan to be honest, but he's convinced me. Uh, he's 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 I've he's not that he needed to earn my respect, but I totally respect him because he can adapt very well, I, much much more than I saw at the beginning. And what I mean by that, just in the Wilder fights, I saw two different fighters fighting Wilder. One took away the right hand and was boxing. The next thing you know, he's now the aggressor taking it to him. So he can adapt and change, which I didn't know he can do that. But if we go back, he's beaten Klitschko. He's beaten Wilder. You know, he, he's beaten these guys that I didn't think he could beat to begin with. So Usyk, obviously his ring IQ, I, I give him a higher ring IQ than I do Tyson Fury. But mm -hmm. There's divisions for a reason, and I think just the size of Fury, uh, that he can move well with his size, will pose a lot of problems. We've seen a couple weaknesses recently in Usyk. Uh, I'm going to go with Fury by decision. Awesome. And the next fight I wanted your opinion on was uh, Prograis versus Haney. Good, good fight. I love the fight. It's a fun fight. You got a puncher against a boxer. Uh, a big puncher in progress. He likes to go in there and, and, and look for a knockout. Uh, I had Daniel Soria um, in progress. last fight wasn't a pretty fight. But one thing Soria told me after the fight is, man, can he punch? He, he hurt mm. me to the body. And he felt it even a, a couple hours even after the fight. I've had a couple of my fighters face Devin Haney, uh, Jorge Linares, and Jojo Diaz. And... I got to say, I have to go with Haney. Haney has a way of controlling the pace, of controlling the distance, has that jab uh, that I see him slowing down the tempo, which at the same time affects progress from landing that big punch. And I don't see Devin being one of the fighters that can get hurt with one. He's going to have to get hurt with multiple punches. Um, Jorge hurt him with one shot, couldn't follow up with more. And he finished the fight on his feet and won the fight. So, um, obviously, Regis hits much harder than Jorge. But I'd have to go with Devin Haney by decision as well. Awesome. And, and last one, seeing as we, we talked about him already, was Ryan Garcia uh, in his upcoming fight. How do you think that fight's going to go? So, I signed both Ryan Garcia and Oscar Duarte. Um, I signed them for both for different reasons. Ryan, I did see a potential of a superstardom. A uh, good-looking young kid. Obviously, he didn't have the social media that he has now at the beginning. But there was that look. There was that speed. There was that charisma. So I did see that coming in. With Duarte, I see I sign him as he comes in as a B-side. Uh, I'm very short notice. Has to lose 13 pounds in about two days. And all I can think of is poor, poor kid. You know, he's, he's just mm -hmm. going to get knocked out. Uh, he was facing a kid from the East Coast who was like 3-0, and three knockouts. It was a four-rounder, and Duarte just lit him up. I mean, the Oscar showed a lot of heart, a lot of strength, uh, a no-die attitude, and went on to win the fight. He came out. Uh, the whole crowd was, wet oh, wet oh, like blondie, blondie, blondie. And he, he won the crowd over, came out. I said, I want to sign you. Not because you won, because of what you went through. On two days' notice, you took on a kid who was 3-0 and with three knockouts. You dropped all the weight, 
And then on top of that, you won. But it's what you were willing to do to get there. You've earned it. I want to sign you. So I signed him. Um, I think it's a very dangerous fight for Ryan, especially coming off the Davis fight. I think he could have taken an easier route, uh, not fighting a big puncher. Um, Duarte is a big puncher. I've seen a lot of the comments from media and fans that, oh, but Duarte's too small. Yes, Duarte's fought at 135, but he's a big 135. And I think in this particular fight, fighting at 140, 140 plus, his body's actually going to say thank you for not cutting that extra weight. I think he'll be stronger mm. eating, you know, basically without having to cut so much. Every fighter has to cut regardless of the weight, but he won't have to cut so much. So I see a very dangerous fight for Ryan. Obviously, Ryan has the height, the reach, the speed, but Duarte if can take it into the later rounds. It could become very difficult. So unlike a lot of what I'm reading that it's... it's a. Uh, People don't know who Duarte is, so he must not be that good. I know mm. who Duarte is. I know what he's <laughs> coming for. He knows this is a huge opportunity for him. Not only if he wins, does he does he have that respect? Okay, he beat Ryan, but he becomes a hero in Chihuahua and Mexico. And and you know what? Right now, that's what he's striving for. So uh, when a fighter believes, that's when he's more dangerous. So. I do see a very good fight, a very close fight. And it's, it's again, seeing two of your kids that you grew and you've grown up with, it's very difficult. That's one of the fights that I'll just sit back. And I know there's going to be moments like, ooh, ah, ah. And, yeah. But uh, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy it. I'll say a draw. Amazing. That was some of the probably the best <laughs> and most thorough fight predictions I've ever heard. I think this could be I mean, I feel like you got to go into commentating or something now, which brings me to my next Thank question. You so much. You're a free agent. So what's next for you? Uh, you know what I'm enjoying um, in, in January? We parted ways with Golden Boy after 15 years. Uh, it was amazing. 15 years, like you said, at the intro, working with Bernard Hopkins, one of my idols and and, and, and mentor and, and just somebody that I, I really look up to and, and Ricky Hatton, who I'm very close with, Miguel Cotto, Barrera, Morales. I mean, some of these greatest fighters that ever uh, have, have laced up the gloves. But today I'm just sitting back helping young fighters, helping veteran fighters on their last fights. Recently I was in Liverpool with Jorge Linares and his last shot and uh, we came up short, asked them, please, you know, after this, we had already talked uh if it doesn't go well, it's time to retire because of age. And sure enough, after the fight, he kept his promise and said, yeah, I'm retiring. I'm going to go into managing. And recently, this past weekend, really, really one of those very emotional moments, once again, of father and son embracing and, and sitting back and watching that feeling of we did it. Lamont Roach Jr., who I send once again, congratulations. He became the WBA Super Featherweight Champion. Uh, this is a kid that I debuted at Golden Boy through his whole career. We went through a world title fight a few years back. We came up short. And this past weekend, his hand was raised as a world champion. So very proud of those accomplishments. But I'll continue working right now independently with young fighters and, and hoping that you know I can make those dreams come true. Amazing. What would you say to, you know, a young amateur who's sort of on the fence of whether pro is the route for them or do they want to take kind of the Olympic route? What would you say to someone like that trying to make a decision about what's best for their, their boxing career? If you have a chance to go to the Olympics, absolutely. There's nothing more glorifying than winning uh, and representing your country in the world's uh, biggest, biggest competition, which is the Olympics. That's one title, like Oscar always said, that you can never lose. Once you get a medal, it's always yours. You can never lose that. So I would always encourage, uh, and even if it's not going to the Olympics, the more experience you have in the amateur program before you go pro, don't rush into pro because it's about money and it's time to make money because what could seem like good money now if you have a better experience and more experience in the amateurs, going into the pros later uh, can can equal out to more money and, and winning more fights and not just being thrown in as an opponent. Now, as well, there's a balance. You don't want to stay too long in the amateurs 
And then by the time you turn pro, uh, it's pretty much too late and it's time to retire. So a good balance. Uh, I always said, you know, everybody grows different, matures different. But once that body starts turning into that man, 21, 22, that's the age of, of being a pro. I mean, we have a world champion in the history of boxing that was a world champion at 17. Just to think of it now, you know, all records are meant to be broke. Uh, I can't see that record ever being broken because, first of all, you got to turn pro at 14 and 15 to be a world champion at 17. And that's a baby fighting men. It's, it's, it's happened. We've seen Canelo. We've seen Barrera. We've seen Morales. You know, so many fighters turn at, at such a young age, but it's not something that that I like to see because there's still they're still babies and they still have mm -hmm. that learning and growing process. Amazing. Now, if, if someone, if there's a young fighter out there who's, who's watching this or listened to this podcast and, you know, thinks that they would like to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Email me at rdsboxing at gmail.com. DM me at Michelada time on, on Instagram or on Twitter. I'm, even even back in the day at Golden Boy when, you know, really busy, I'd always try to get back to everybody and, and you know, text back or send a message and, and encourage, especially young fighters. I mean, it's it's always uh, that that give it back, you know, to a, even if it's a fan, that's not going to lace the gloves because I remember meeting Barrera, him giving me the time, and because of that, I'm here today, so... I'll always give the time to to that fan. In fact, I met a young man, uh, Jaden Figueroa. If you're listening, I send all the best. Um, I met him after the fight, Lamont Roach's fight, and um, he, he, he collects credentials. But that one was so special because Lamont had just won the world title, so I didn't want to give that up. But I said, call me, text me, send me your address, and I'll send you a package. And his package actually went out today. And that's so cool. That's almost full because circle he from was like your a, story. A young fan. Yeah. Exactly. Just as you were in the, as as a boy in, in the mall, um, bumping into your hero. That's that's amazing. What a, what an incredible story that you have. You know, coming from a dream uh, and turning it into a, a two day two decade long legacy and counting. Um, a legend in the sport. Roberto, it's been such a pleasure getting Thank to know you, so you and much. chatting with you. And speaking of time, we're so grateful that you uh, spent some time with us chatting tonight. I'm so happy and, and grateful that you guys invited me and uh, it's a pleasure and again to the listeners and, and everybody listening is just a reminder that dreams do come true, you know, and, and if that's something you want to do, I always say that we got to learn from our sport of boxing. Um, there's good days and bad days, just like there's good rounds and bad rounds, but we just got to keep moving forward and, and, and adapt that uh, discipline that our boxer has into life itself. There's no better way to end that show. And so thank you so much for that nugget. And Roberto, again, thank you so much for your time. This has been another episode of the Empire Boxing Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Jay, and our guest, Roberto Diaz. Thank you so much for watching. Make sure to listen, follow, and subscribe to Empire Boxing on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube.